Last week, we started Exodus 21, and we did an excursus because we're so far removed from the culture of Exodus that we needed to spend some time talking about the differences and the problems when you start translating into English what we're reading in this text. So we talked about the concepts of the Ebed and the Emma. The Ebed was the male servant, slave, worker, however you want to translate them. The Emma was the female servant, slave, worker, concubine, these different ways of translating. These were known categories in the ancient world, and scripture speaks into those contexts and says this is, this is how we're going to start steering this project away from what it is in the world. Scripture sets a trajectory that will not be fully realized until the New Testament. That's really important to keep in mind. When Jesus was asked about things like uh, marriage and divorce and sexual immorality and all those questions that people were divided over because of how they read the law, he pointed them back to creation, back all the way to Genesis 2. He said, look, yeah, Moses allowed you to divorce, but that was just because of your hard-heartedness, your sinfulness. God didn't intend it to be that way in the beginning, and so he cited Genesis 2. What that let us know, what that lets us know, and when we read the rest of the New Testament, what we see is that this covenant that we're reading, this Mosaic covenant, was not God's intended purpose for all of humanity for all time. It wasn't. It was God's covenant with Israel for ancient Near East Israel to live under in their cultural setting until the coming of the Redeemer, who was promised all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. So it's super important to put that in its context, and what we're going to realize is Torah, these covenant laws, are giving laws that are going to guide Israel for a set period of time. It's not the full redemption. It's not the full uh, desire that God has for creation. He has something better in mind than this, and we see that later in the prophets when they even talk about the Old Testament prophets, when they talk about him making a new covenant with the house of Israel. And then, of course, when Jesus comes along and says, this is my blood of the new covenant poured out for you for many. And then we see the New Testament take the Old Testament ethics and elevate them, raise them even higher. Jesus never lessened the demands of the law. He raised them. Jesus says, yeah, the law says don't kill. I'm telling you, don't even hate without reason. I'm telling you, don't even desire to kill. The law says don't commit adultery. I'm telling you, don't even... Think about committing adultery with someone. Jesus, Jesus never slackened the, uh, the moral imperatives of the law. He raised them out of their container of the Sinai covenant and into the realm of the spirit throughout the earth. So when you read the Old Testament, you know, and this happens all the time in discussions of things like slavery and uh, sexual rights, marriage, abortion, all of these hot-button social issues, people try to flip and find chapter and verse in the Bible, and both sides go to the same passages and say, see, you call this, you know, you're fighting for biblical marriage? Great, when do we legalize concubines? Oh, biblical marriage? Great, when do you legalize polygamy? You know, like, they, they, they take scripture and they try to apply it because they've heard Christians well-meaning say things like, well, just follow the Bible, without putting it into its context and showing the redemptive flow of history. So it's really, really important when you have discussions about things where scripture will set a trajectory where it starts where God is with people in the world and then God leads them on a path that will ultimately be fulfilled in Jesus and, and raises their ethic. And he does that with things like slavery, where we see even starting in here, there's a redemptive ethic 
to the Israelite version of servanthood that's not found in the other cultures. God is raising them above their culture. In the New Testament, it comes full-blown in letters like Philemon, where Paul writes to a slave owner and says, hey, take this guy back, not as your slave, but as your brother. And just blows open the whole foundations of Greco-Roman slavery. So the New Testament continues that trajectory. Whereas other issues, like issues like sexual morality, we see the Old Testament setting a trajectory and the New Testament continuing it. And, and the things that are set in the Old Testament of what's permissible, by and large, are continued in the New Testament. So people try to equate you know, the controversies about same-sex marriage and things like that. And they say, well, the Bible, you know, we don't have slaves anymore and women can be pastors now. So that means that we should change our views on sexual ethics as well. What you see in the Old Testament is on slavery, it sets a trajectory that takes it towards freedom. On the issues of women, it sets a trajectory that takes it away from misogyny and patriarchy towards the equality of women. And even in the Old Testament, women in leadership and teaching positions. So those issues, Scripture sets a trajectory that takes it somewhere in the New Testament. But on issues of, for instance, same-sex uh, sexuality, it doesn't set that trajectory. It stays the same in both testaments. It's set outside the bounds of what God desires for marriage or for faithfulness. So it's really important to read that rather than picking and choosing. And a lot of people in our culture, unfortunately, even in churches, aren't trained to do that or aren't even encouraged to do that or don't even know that that's a thing. They just pick up and read chapter and verse. So we talked about that last week, and I'm not going to spend too much more time because we've got to get into the heart of this chapter this week. But go back and catch the podcast, catch the YouTube video if you missed it, and you want to understand why I'm going to use words like worker or servant rather than slave. All right? So we start in verse chapter 21, verse 2. If you buy a Hebrew servant, he is to serve you for six years, but in the seventh year he shall go free without paying anything. If he comes alone, he's to go free alone. If he has a wife when he comes, she's to go with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the woman and her children shall belong to her master and only the man shall go free. That wouldn't be permanent. There would be, uh, she would be able to redeem, or he would be able to redeem his family as well. But it's talking about at the moment when the man's servitude is up, after those six years. But, verse 5, if the servant declares, I love my master and my wife and children and do not want to go free, then his master must take him before the judges. He shall take him to the door or the doorpost and pierce his ear with an awl. Then he will be his servant for life. So, in Israel, it was common enough for a servant to desire to remain a servant with his master's family. They had a good master. People like Eliezer, remember him from Genesis, Abraham's servant. He was like a son to Abraham. There's no, he, he wouldn't want to go free. So this is the providing for when debt slaves, which is almost all of the slavery at this time, these would have been debt slaves. They would have been selling themselves to a servant, to a master for a period of six years in order to pay their debts. This is talking about if somebody does that and decides, you know, actually, I'm better with my master's family living with the family than off on my own somewhere. I want to stay. That was common enough where they would do a ceremony, take him to, to be a doorpost or a city gate or didn't have cities, they were kind of uh, nomadic then, but some wooden structure that was the doorpost where people would come and went. And the, the ear, would take his ear and it would, with an awl, thing that you make holes in leather with, and would pierce it to the doorpost. Now I wouldn't stab it and leave it there, it was just a symbolic action. What it was doing, piercing of the ear was basically saying, I'm, I'm, I'm binding myself, my ear symbolizes your obedience. 
your listening, your, your faithfulness as a servant. And so it's basically saying, I'm, I'm pledging before everybody, not some secret agreement that I can go back on later, but in front of the whole community, I am entering into the family here. I am becoming a member. I'm staying for life. And this is something that apparently happened enough to warrant having a law about it. Um, and it wasn't uncommon. <clears throat> then it goes on, verse 7. If a man sells his daughter as an Emma, as a maidservant, she is not to go free as the men servants do, the Evans. Uh, and, and this is because if he sells it, she has a wife status. She becomes a wife or a concubine or whatever it is. She, she takes on the status that a male servant wouldn't get. A male servant it would just be a contractual worker, but a female servant would be uh, taking her as a wife. If she does not please the master who selected her for himself, he must let her be redeemed. He has no right to sell her to foreigners because he has broken faith with her. If he selects her for a son, he must grant her the rights of a daughter. If he marries another woman, he must not deprive the first of her food, clothing, and and NIV here says marital rights, something like that. Um, this is this is what's called a hapex legomenon. It's only one time that a word is found in all of the Bible, so we aren't exactly sure what it means. And it, this that word translated marital rights. This is the only time that word is found in the Bible. So it's a guess that it means marital rights. However, in some cognate documents like the laws of Hammurabi or some Sumerian laws that were around the same time period, there are three things that that first wives who the husband then marries someone else, first wives are to be provided for no matter what. And it's food, clothing, or yeah, food, clothing, and, and oil, like olive oil. That, that, was, that was seen as like a basic need or a currency. And so you'll read some biblical scholars that will say, actually, this shouldn't be translated in rights, it should be translated as oil providing the needs of. In other words, if I marry someone, and remember, this is a rampant polygamous culture that God's speaking into, and so if I marry someone in the ancient world, you know, acquire a wife for my son or for myself, and you know, oh, this is great, mm, I'm tired of you. I want a newer model. So I go and I upgrade, <laughs> then the first wife is like, well, you know, style up. And in the ancient world, it was kind of like, well, too bad. You know, send her on her way or sell her as a slave. I mean, that, that was just common. And what God's saying is, no, you married her, she stays. If you don't let her be redeemed by her family, then she stays and she stays as your wife. And she retains her full status as your wife. And she retains her daily provision of her needs as your wife. In other words, you can't just say, ah, I'm done. I'm going to get rid of this one, get a new one. So in Scripture, this is what I'm talking about, where this is not God's final ethic. In the New Testament, he's going to bring this all the way up to there's neither male nor female, all are one in Christ. But even in the Old Testament, he's starting to raise this ethic from the surrounding culture and saying, you're going to be different than the Egyptians and the Sumerians and the, well, the Sumerians were dead by then, but the Egyptians and the Babylonians and Syrians and all those people. Um, and, and in terms of even how you treat the lowest rung of society in the eyes of everybody else, which would be servant women. Um, in the ancient world, they were just considered property. They were just considered something you just got rid of. And so God already here is saying, no, she's going to be provided and have the status of, of a wife and be uh, taken care of. If he does not provide her with these three things, she's to go free without any payment of money. In other words, you provide for her or she's free. You can't have it both. You can't profit off of a, a selling something. You know, you married her and then you try to make a quick buck or whatever. So already we're seeing, again, is it our ethic? Do we want to enact this in our culture? No, this is not 
God doesn't, Jesus doesn't desire this. He's going to talk about what marriage is. And he's going to point people back to Genesis 2. So this is a temporary provision for God's people during the interim as they're growing up. Paul will talk about it, the law being a schoolmaster, like the, the tutor that makes sure the kid gets to school and does his assignments on time. Then verse 12, anyone who strikes a man and kills him shall surely be put to death. However, if he does not do so intentionally, but God allows it to happen, he is to flee to a place I will designate. But if a man schemes and kills another man deliberately, and the, the, the Hebrew here is pretty cool, it's if a man boils, literally the word boils, like his anger and his resentment just schemes and plots and boils up until he strikes out. Um, if he kills another man deliberately, take him away from my altar and put him to death. In the ancient world, they had sanctuary in the temple. You, you kill somebody, you could flee and lay hold of the horns of the altar in the temple of Baal or the temple of Asher or the temple of whoever, and it was kind of like sanctuary. Like yet they, couldn't, they couldn't kill you because you were claiming whatever. And what God's saying is like, no, not if it's deliberate. If you kill somebody accidentally, then there's a system. And God's going to elaborate on this later in Numbers. The whole cities of refuge concept is going to come up later. We're not even there yet. But he's just laying out the thing, whereas if, if someone dies, someone takes life intentionally, they have forfeited theirs. And they're to be, even if they claim sanctuary in the altar, they're to be taken away and put to death if they deliberately murdered someone. And this is what God said all the way back in Genesis 9 with the covenant of Noah. Anyone who sheds the blood of man, by man will his blood be shed. So God's making, he's putting in place this concept that, that life has to be redeemed by life. And that, that in, in the concept, of, in the time of the ancient Near East, there was a concept called the avenger of blood. And the avenger of blood, we read about this in, in throughout scripture, but the avenger of blood works like this. This is before there's centralized police. This is before there's law enforcement, before there's armies that, or excuse me, um, military oversight. Um, this is back when, if justice was served, it was done in a community, family, tribe setting. And what happened was, in the ancient world, if a member of one family was killed, then it was not just the prerogative, it was the duty of the avenger of blood from that family to go and avenge the death by killing someone from the family of whoever killed them, preferably the person who did the killing. It was, it was a duty. It wasn't like just something you could opt to do. There were people in the family, you were trained, you, you had an obligation to avenge the death of someone in your family. That was ancient Near East law. And it still happens in various places around the world today. So what God's going to put in place, and, and, and so you would go and do that, and then there were these laws that were all these different cultures had different ways of dealing with that, determining guilt and innocence. And, and if I, I didn't mean to kill him, you know, it was an accident. We were working the field, and I was... You know, taking him with a shovel and he backed into me and I cracked him and he's dead. There would be a whole court setting, a whole procedural setting where you come before the elders of the tribe and they would hear the facts. They would listen to the eyewitnesses. And if there were two or more, there had to be two or more. We'll read later in I think Deuteronomy. If there were two or more eyewitnesses who saw it and said, no, no, this was intentional. Or they heard the scheming earlier. No, no, this was intentional. Then the person would be put to death. And, but that was it. Not the person's family put to death. 
not the person's relatives to the third generation, or their offspring, which is how it worked in ancient law. In, in Torah, it was not that way, and we'll see how God says that in just a few verses. Uh, if a man schemes, kills another man, he'll be taken away from the altar and put him to death. Verse 15, anyone who attacks his father or his mother must be put to death. Verse 16, anyone who kidnaps another and either sells him or has him when he's caught must be put to death. We saw last week, this completely negates North American slavery. The transatlantic slave trade, everyone involved with it under Torah law would have been put to death. All the ships in the Middle Passage that took Africans from Africa to the plantations in Jamaica or the Caribbean, and then up to the, all of them would be put to death because they kidnapped someone and they sold them into slavery. That was forbidden by the Bible. This is a huge difference that people don't take into account when they read the word slave in the Bible. That's why I don't, I'm not using the word slave because we think of the transatlantic slave trade and that, that, that even under Old Testament law, slavery in the South would not have been allowed. And all of the slave traders and plantation owners and all of them would have faced the death penalty in Israel. Super important to keep in mind. Uh, verse 12, anyone who curses his father and mother must be put to death. Now this is not anyone who cusses at his father and mother. All right? There's a difference between cursing in the biblical sense and what we in the South call cussing. All right? This is not if you're just, you know, you know go off on your parents using some, watching my language because it's taped. Um, <laughs> it's not that. This is cursing, invoking God himself to put to death your parents in a public setting. That's what cursing is. Calling down the wrath, speaking death over someone else. That's what cursing is much, much more profound, deep thing than just getting angry at. And this is talking about adult children. It's not talking about kids in anger throwing a tantrum. So this is because, what was that commandment? Honor your father and your mother. They're, they're the backbone of the whole community, the whole family system. So there were laws in place for not only honoring and not attacking, but not even verbally, spiritually attacking your mother and your father. There was a place of honor that they were to hold, and it was so severe, it's one of the few things that God prescribes the death penalty for. There's not many things that God prescribes the capital punishment for in the Old Testament. There really, there's like a half a dozen tops, uh, and that's one of them. So that speaks to the importance of how we treat our adult parents as we're uh, claiming to follow God. Verse 18, if men quarrel and one hits the other with a stone or with his fist and he does not die but is confined to bed, the one who struck the blow will not be held responsible if the other gets up and walks around outside with his staff. That's basically saying he's not, he, he's not crippled, he's not you know, permanently disabled, he's just beat up. After a day or so, you get up, and okay, I gotta walk around with my staff. What this is saying is the person who did it won't be avenged. That, that whole blood avenger thing will not carry if someone doesn't die. If they live, they can't be avenged. There'll be punishment, but they can't be avenged. Um, the one who struck the blow will not be responsible if the other gets up and walks around with his staff. However, he must pay the injured man for the loss of his time and see that he is completely healed. So the damage that is done, the person lived, but they were in bed for a couple of days. They were, they were out of work. You have to pay for that. If you caused it, you have to pay their damages. And you have to pay all of their hospital bills. 
there's no, there's no hospital back then, but that's what it's saying is you have to pay to make sure they're completely healed. You did the damage, so you have to compensate. Uh, verse 20. Now this is this is weird. For 20 through 23, I'm going to actually read from the Hebrew rather than the NIV because NIV is just so screwed up here. Uh, and I use the NIV, so I'm not knocking it, but this is just the part where they blow it. Um, because for no reason, they change and start using the word slave. If you're reading in NIV, they've been using servant, 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 the whole chapter. And then in this one verse, they change it to slave, which is really weird. And it makes the verse sound way more barbaric than it should sound. Um, so I'll read it in the NIV. If a man beats his male or female slave with a rod and the slave dies as a direct result, he must be punished. But he's not to be punished if the slave gets up after a day or two, since the slave is his property. Now that sounds terrible. I mean, let's just not even try to get around it. That sounds terrible. Uh, but that's not what the Hebrew text says. And this is a part where, again, I don't know why. But literally, I'll read it in Hebrew. It says, if he hit a man, his Ebed or his Emma, male servant or female servant, and he dies under his hand, absolutely he must be avenged. But if a day or two he stands, meaning if he's just injured but not dead, if a day or two he stands, then not he will be avenged because his money is he. That's what it says in Hebrew. NIV takes it and does a lot of interpretive stuff with this passage. But what this passage is basically saying in Hebrew is if you strike your, your Emma or your Evan, your male servant or your maid servant, and they die, you will, they will be avenged. And the word punished is lame here. It's, it's the word avenge. It's, it, it's even if in other cultures this didn't work. You kill a slave, eh, you may pay a fine, tops. In Hebrew culture, no, if you, if you kill a, a, a slave, a servant, then they will be avenged. You will, your life is forfeit. But if they don't die, if they're, if, you know, if you, you're using the rod, and the rod was like the disciplinary thing, like, like, hey, get back to work. You, if you're using the rod, if you beat them, whatever, you, you lose your temper, you beat them severely, you're just mean, evil, whatever, and they're injured, and they, but they're not dead, then you'll pay a fine. You won't be avenged. In other words, you don't forfeit your life because they didn't die. But there is a fine you're going to pay. However, the fine is them. They're your money. They go free. They're your money. Not this because the slave is his property. That doesn't, the word is money. It's the word that's used everywhere else. And what it's saying is if you beat the slave and they get beat up and they get injured, then that's it. That's your fine. They're, they, they're free. They're your fine. You've paid your fine. You lose their services. You lose them. The contract, if they're in their first year of their contract, too bad. They're, that's the payment. So it's, again, and I'll email, I can email you out if you want the, the literal of this versus what NIV or others have. But it's really important for this passage just to keep that in mind. And then the next passage, verse 22. If men are fighting, hit a pregnant woman, and she get, and this is again where the NIV does interpretation. It says, and she gives birth prematurely, but there is no serious injury. The offender must be fined whatever the woman's husband demands and the court allows. But if there is serious injury, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. Now, what this says literally in Hebrew is, 
if men fight and they strike a pregnant woman and they go out her child or her child goes out, this is where some people say, well, it's talking about miscarriage. Others say, no, it's talking about premature birth. Well, the Hebrew is vague enough to allow for both. Others say it's talking about she's able to still have children. Like you hit a pregnant woman and she's injured, but she's still able to have children. The children can still go out is an idiomatic way of saying that. There are three different ways that it can be interpreted. And the Hebrew is vague enough to encompass them all. But the ruling is um, if, if the child goes out, but there is not harm, mortal danger. The baby doesn't die. She doesn't die. All right. If, if, if everything's okay, other than premature birth, possibly miscarriage, but it's more likely it's talking about premature birth than miscarriage. Um, then it says, there's no harm, then the person will absolutely be fine, just as the woman's husband or master, it's the same word, determines and the court allows. So in other words, if you cause damage even to a, a, a child in the womb, if there's damage, you're going to be fine because they're a person. And, and there's, there's recompense that has to be made. This, the, the thing that fascinates me is this is the first time you hear eye for eye, tooth for tooth, uh, wound for wound, burn for burn. It's called the lex talionis, it's the law of retaliation. And the first time it's ever stated in the Bible is in connection with what happens to a fetus. And that's interesting to me. And later God will talk about knitting together someone in their mother's womb. And he'll talk about Jesus and John the Baptist when they meet in the womb. They jump for joy. They weep at each other. There's a, there's a sense of that, that, that what's going on in here is another person. And that's super important in our culture today, especially because a few minutes ago, the fifth Planned Parenthood video had just been released. Um, and if you haven't seen it, watch it. It's eye-opening. Regardless, uh, this is setting a precedent that if there is damage to happen, and it's not mortal, there's still going to be a fine. There's still going to be, the person still has to pay. What God's instilling in these passages for his, his people is if there's damage, if there's loss, if there's suffering, then the person who causes it has to do something to rectify it. They have to make it right. Not just pay a fine to some nebulous entity. They have to make sure that it's right for the person that was injured. If life is taken, then life is required. If there was an intentional loss of life, and, then, and that's the key that God makes. There's a different word between kill and murder. We talked about it a couple weeks ago. The commandment isn't you should not, you shall not kill. It's you shall not intentionally kill or unjustifiably kill or what we would call murder. What God says is when there's murder, that requires a life to be paid. And the life of the person who did it, not their family member or something else. Um, but if there's not anything short of that, then you have to make it right. This is Israel didn't have prisons. They didn't have jail. That was that's a foreign concept to the ancient world. You do a crime, you go away to prison. They would be like, why? They damage this person. Make them do something to make it right for this person. Don't send them away to some other place. Uh, the whole concept of jail is just weird from the ancient Near East perspective, no matter how normal it is to us. And so what God is, as he's setting up, is he's, he's, he's dealing this section of Exodus 21. The people that are being talked about, servants, slaves, emmets, evid, however you want to uh, call them, and unborn. 
those are the people whose, whose um, if you want to say rights, legal rights, God is talking about in this chapter. He's starting with the rights and the legality of the lowest of the society and going from there. That in and of itself gives you a glimpse into the priorities of God as opposed to the priorities of the world where they would have started talking about things like the rights of noblemen or the rights of the master, the rights of the, you know, the landowner, all that stuff. God starts out talking about, this is what happens if you injure a slave. This is what happens if you hit an injure a pregnant woman. This is what happens if you want to get rid of your maidservant. This, so he starts at that lowest rung. The last one, verse 26, if a man hits his uh, manservant or maidservant in the eye and destroys it, he must let the servant go free to compensate for the eye. If he knocks out the tooth of a manservant or maidservant, he must let the servant go free to compensate for the tooth. This sets the precedent and it lets us know uh, back from previous verses that the injury that the man causes is the freedom. It results in the freedom of the slave. In the ancient world, Beat your servant all you want. That's just, you know, knock your tooth out, big deal. Tell them to suck it up and get back to work. You know, in this, in this case, it's, you know, if you injure them, they go free because that is the outworking of the principle of eye for eye, tooth for tooth. It wasn't a literal thing. It's not like, you know, if Joe and I get in a fight, he knocks my tooth out, which, let's face it, is never going to happen. But uh, if he knocks my tooth out, it's not like he and I would go before the judge and then the judge would say, okay, Open your mouth. You got to have your tooth knocked out. It wasn't like that. It's not a literal eye for eye, tooth for tooth. It's it's the concept of the punishment has to fit the crime. Because in the other societies, we said last week, if that happened, he knocks my tooth out, then I go and I put his children to death. And and that's just how it worked. Especially if I'm a higher standing. And what the law of retaliation is not saying is vengeance. They hurt me. I'm going to hurt them. That's how it got interpreted in Jesus' day, and that's why he did the whole love your enemies thing. But he was never overturning the concept of the, how it should actually be practiced, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. The whole purpose of eye for eye, tooth for tooth was to limit, it was to set a cap on the punishment. Life for life. Okay. Well, they didn't take my life, they took my eye. Then eye for eye, that's as high as you can go. You can't do life for eye. Well, they knocked out my tooth, tooth for tooth. Well, they bruised me bruise for bruise. It sets limits to the punishment because what God didn't want was an all-out society like was in Genesis back before the flood. We talked about with Lamech and bragging, oh, I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for insulting me. It wasn't like that. God was setting his, his society said, the punishment will fit the crime. Crime is real. It can't just be ignored. It can't be overlooked. It can't be, my bad, let me get a do-over. No, crime is real, and there have to be temporal consequences to it. But those consequences should be for the purpose of redemption and restoration of the shalom, the peace of the society. And that's what true justice, regardless of what it looks like, regardless of which, how we make it work in different societies around the world, the aim of justice should be restoring this shalom, this sense of peace, this sense of everything being right or whole again. And any justice, any laws that don't aim to that, when they start aiming towards vengeance rather than restoration, and they ignore the victims in order to punish the perpetrator, then we've started to get 
a little bit out of what God wants in terms of a society. The person who was sinned against, the person who was, who was hurt, harmed, that's who there has to be a, a restoration of. There has to, it has to be made right there. Not just, oh, well, we sent them away to life, so that's just a serve. It may, it may not be. All that has to be worked out, and that's the whole realm of Christian ethics. And we're just scratching the surface. But what we're doing in this chapter, and we'll pick it up next time, is we're seeing the foundations upon which any of our ethics have to be based. We can't do that unless we know what the ethic at the time was. And then we see how it's transformed through the coming of the gospel as well. So we're going to pick up uh, the rest of this chapter because it's going to move from dealing with things like people to what happens when life, life is lost through non-people, animals. For instance, Israel was a herd society. They dealt with animals like we deal with cars. So there are going to be lots of laws regarding animals. It shouldn't surprise us. Um, next week, however, I will not be here. Uh, Alan is going to come back, and he's going to teach again for one week. I will be with my family down in Florida, my extended family. And then the week after, I'll be back. So next week, you get a guest speaker, and um, we'll pick it up here when I get back after that. Have a great week.